All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, we are here standing in the confessional corner for episode number 114 of Wrestling With Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here as your guide as we go through the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, as they have been handed down to us, starting with the Catechisms of Martin Luther in 1529, all the way down to the Formula of Concord that was ratified in 1577, then later all compiled into the Book of Concord of 1580. Today we continue our look into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, the defense of our Confession against the Roman Church. We're in Article 4 on justification, the most important article, as it takes up many, many pages in the defense. All about justification. And this is our third broadcast on this article, and we have still not gotten out of the introductory paragraphs yet. But what we need to talk about right now is kind of a recap of what has been said and what needs to be said once again, because we'll say it over and over again. Man does not and cannot merit God's grace. By its very nature, grace is a gift. It is not a payment for something you've done. But the Roman theologians strongly disagree with us. In this agreement, in this disagreement, not only does the Bible agree with the Lutherans, but the church fathers do as well. It's natural man's desire for the law that makes people believe that they can balance their bad deeds with their good deeds, that they can even outgood their evil. And we pick this up as Melanchthon carries on in paragraph 36. Lastly, it is very foolish for the adversaries to write that people who are under eternal wrath merit forgiveness of sins by an act of love which springs from their mind. For it is impossible to love God unless forgiveness of sins is first received by faith. The heart, truly feeling that God is angry, cannot love God unless he is shown to have been reconciled. As long as he terrifies us and seems to cast us into eternal death, human nature is not able to take courage. It cannot love a wrathful, judging, and punishing God. It is easy for idle men to invent such dreams about love, such as a person guilty of mortal sin can love God above all things, because they do not feel what God's wrath or judgment is. But in agony of conscience and in conflicts with Satan, conscience experiences the emptiness of these philosophical speculations. Paul says in Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. He does not say that by the law people merit forgiveness of sins, for the law always accuses and terrifies consciences. Therefore, it does not justify, because a conscience terrified by the law runs from God's judgment. They err who assume that by the law, by their own works, they merit forgiveness of sins. It is enough for us to have said these things about the righteousness of reason or of the law, which the adversaries teach. Later, when we will declare our belief about the righteousness of faith, the subject itself will drive us to present more testimonies. These also will be of service in overthrowing the adversary's errors that we have reviewed so far. Melanchthon says it is foolish for the Roman theologians, the doctors of the church, to give the idea that someone who is lost and condemned can love God and can merit the forgiveness of sins through an act of love. 
as it says, the heart truly feeling that God is angry cannot love God unless he has been shown to be reconciled. And there is no reconciliation in the law. The law always accuses and terrifies consciences. That's why they talk about the agony of the conscience. It's because that's what the law does. The law shows that we are nowhere near what we need to be. The law sets up a benchmark and we fall short all the time. Melanchthon goes on in paragraph 40. By their own strength, people cannot fulfill God's law. They are all under sin, subject to eternal wrath and death. Because of this, we cannot be freed by the law from sin and be justified. But the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification has been given us for Christ's sake, who was given for us in order that he might make satisfaction for the sins of the world. He has been appointed the mediator and atoning sacrifice. This promise does not depend on our merits, but freely offers forgiveness of sins and justification, as Paul says in Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In another place, Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, forgiveness of sins is freely offered. Nor does reconciliation depend on our merits. Because if the forgiveness of sins were to depend on our merits and reconciliation were from the law, it would be useless. Since we do not fulfill the law, it would also follow that we would never gain the promise of reconciliation. Paul reasons this way in Romans 4.14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If the promise would depend on our merits and the law which we never fulfill, it would follow that the promise would be useless. A promise that dangles out there the fact that you have to live up to a certain unattainable standard is a null and void promise. It does you no good. So the idea that justification is there if you're just better. And what exactly is better? Well, better than you are now. But will you ever get to be good enough? That is the question. And the law constantly says no. No matter how long people try to fulfill the law, they always find themselves falling short. They will never measure up to what God has declared and deemed to be his good and perfect will. We continue in paragraph 43. Since justification is gained through the free, free promise, it follows that we cannot justify ourselves. Otherwise, why would there need be a promise? Since the promise can only be received by faith, the gospel, which is properly the promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification for Christ's sake, proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. The law does not teach this, nor is this the righteousness of the law. For the law demands our works and our perfection. But for Christ's sake, the gospel freely offers reconciliation to us who have been vanquished by sin and death. This is received not by works, but by faith alone. This faith does not bring to God confidence in one's own merits, but only confidence in the promise or the mercy promised in Christ. This special faith, 
by which an individual believes that for Christ's sake his sins are forgiven him, and that for Christ's sake God is reconciled and sees us favorably, gains forgiveness of sins and justifies us. In repentance, namely, in terrors, this faith comforts and encourages hearts. It regenerates us and brings the Holy Spirit so that we may be able to fulfill God's law, to love God, truly fear God, truly be confident that God's hear, God hears prayers, and obey God in all afflictions. This faith puts to death concupiscence and the like. So faith freely receives forgiveness of sins. It says Christ, the mediator and atoning sacrifice, against God's wrath. It does not present our merits or our love. This faith is the true knowledge of Christ and helps itself to the benefits of Christ. This faith regenerates hearts and comes before the fulfilling of the law. Not a syllable about this faith exists in the teaching of our adversaries. Therefore, we find equal fault with the adversaries because A, they teach only the righteousness of the law, and B, they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel, which proclaims the righteousness of faith in Christ. Faith is what was lacking in the medieval Roman church. Faith is still what is lacking when people try to add what they do to what Jesus has done. Faith is not faith if it's not the whole thing. You have to have it all or you get nothing. Tulane Tavidjan talks about this in his book, Jesus plus, plus anything equals nothing. Because when you add anything to Jesus, you make what Jesus did worth less. And that's exactly what the Bible tries to keep us from doing. The, the Bible brings us the gospel of Jesus, crucified and dead and buried for our sins, that he has died our death, and that for his sake and for his resurrection, we are now in a place where we have been reconciled with God through the sacrament of baptism. But all of that only works for us by faith. It is not by head knowledge, it is not by doing the right things. It is not by doing enough of the right things. It is simply by faith. And therefore, Melanchthon can finish his introduction with the two things that we fault the adversaries, the Roman theologians with. That they only teach the righteousness of the law and that they do not teach the righteousness of the gospel. What the Roman theologians have done is they had allowed philosophy and sophistry to influence and invade the Christian faith, no longer making it faith, no longer making it the Christian religion, but just like every other religion in the world, that we have to be good enough to placate the God of that religion. And that is not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, come unto me, you who have done all the good deeds that I want you to do, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Those burdens are most time the conscience 
of sinners who try desperately hard in order to fulfill God's will, but don't. Not because they are willfully struggling against God, but because they fall short day after day after day. It's not an issue of not doing the right things. It's an issue of sin in the heart and in the soul that we still have in this life that has not been eradicated. But the gospel presents us with the fact that it will be eradicated, that we will be able to fulfill God's law when we let our faith dwell in Christ where it truly belongs. All right, we continue on into paragraph 48. This next section, paragraphs 48 to 60, talk about what is justifying faith. Melanchthon keeps talking about faith. The Roman theologians talk about faith, but they mean two different things by the same word. So what is it that Melanchthon means by this faith that justifies? Paragraph 48. The adversaries imagine that faith is only a knowledge of the history of Christ. Therefore, they teach that it can coexist with mortal sin. They say nothing about faith by which Paul so frequently says that people are justified. For those who are counted as righteous before God do not live in mortal sin. But the faith that justifies is not merely a knowledge of history. It is to believe in God's promise, and the promise for Christ's sake, forgiveness of sins and justification are freely offered. And so that no one may suppose that this is mere knowledge, we will add further. It is to want and to receive the offered promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification. The adversaries believe that if you just know about Jesus, that's enough. And then that can lead you to conquer your sin. But just knowing about Jesus. And over the course of the last four decades, we have had people try to wrestle with this question and come up with all kinds of different answers. And none of them give you justification. None of them give you reconciliation with God because that is the one thing they want to take away from Jesus. That is the one thing that faith gives. We keep going. The difference between this faith and the righteousness of the law can be easily discerned. Faith is the divine service that receives the benefits offered by God. The righteousness of the law is the divine service that offers to God our merits. God wants to be worshipped through faith so that we may receive from him those things he promises and offers. God doesn't ask us for anything. God is the one who stands and continually seeks to give to us. Faith means not only a knowledge of the history, but the kind of faith that believes in the promise. Paul plainly testifies about this when he says in Romans 4.16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. He judges that the promise cannot be received unless it comes through faith. Therefore, he puts them together as things that belong to one another. He connects the promise and faith. It will be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed, where this article certainly stands, the forgiveness of sins. It is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, was raised again, unless we also add this article, which is the purpose of the history, to forgive sins. To this article, the rest must be referred, namely that for Christ's sake, and not because of our merits, forgiveness of sins is given to us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins if we can merit satisfaction on our own? 
Whenever we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects belong together, the promise, grace, and Christ merits as the price and atonement. The promise is received through faith. Grace excludes our merits and means that the benefit is offered only through mercy. Christ's merits are the price because there must be a certain atonement for our sins. Scripture frequently cries out for mercy. The Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. Therefore, whenever mercy is mentioned, we must keep in mind that faith, which receives the promise of mercy, is required there. Again, whenever we speak about faith, we want an object of faith to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. Let me repeat this last line again. For faith justifies and saves, not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. Faith has to have an object. It has to believe in something. And that something is the promise of mercy for Christ's sake. And we continue on in paragraphs 57 to 60. Throughout the prophets and the Psalms, this worship is highly praised, even though the law does not teach the free forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament fathers knew the promise about Christ, that God, for Christ's sake, wanted to forgive sins. They understood that Christ would be the price for our sins. They knew that our works are not a price for so great a matter. So they received free mercy and forgiveness of sins by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. To this point belong those frequent repetitions about mercy and faith that appear in the Psalms and the prophets. For example, Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not list his merits. He adds, But with you there is forgiveness. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy, and he refers to the promise, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. This means, because you have promised the forgiveness of sins, I am sustained by your promise. Therefore, the fathers also were justified, not by the law, but by the promise and faith. It is amazing that the adversaries diminish faith to such a degree, even though they see that it is everywhere praised as a great service. For example, Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. God wants himself to be known. He wants himself to be worshipped, so that we receive benefits from him and receive them because of his mercy, not because of our merits. This is the richest consolation in all afflictions. The adversaries ban such consolation when they diminish and disparage faith and teach only that by means of works and merits, people interact with God. Here we have Melanchthon quickly going through and saying that the Old Testament is covered with examples of the fathers of the faith knowing that their salvation, their justification, all comes from God's mercy, not by all the things they did. As the Lenten hymn tells us, not all the blood of beast on Jewish altars slain could, could cover the price of our sins. I'm not quoting the verse verbatim because I don't have it in front of me, but that is the point of the entire hymn is that all of the sacrifices in all of the Old Testament, day after day, year after year, generation after generation, are nothing without that knowledge of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, who is coming to bring, what? Forgiveness of sins and justification, which were promised in the very beginning to Adam and Eve, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. 
would crush the power of the one who had brought sin into the world. What is that crushing other than giving free forgiveness of sins? That is what God promises all the way back in Genesis 3. That's what he continues throughout all of the Bible. And as Melanchthon will continue on throughout, he focuses on this. And he'll bring out Abraham over and over again, talking about Abraham being righteous before he fulfilled the law. Which, of course, for the Jewish idea, that is the law of circumcision and being brought into the covenant. But Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. So that is a question that Melanchthon has the adversaries wrestle with, and they still do not do a good job with that. I'm going to call it quits for this episode. This has been episode number 114, the confessional corner here on Wrestling With Theology. Once again, I am Pastor Doug Minton, your guide through the confessions. And as we continue down this road, we look forward to next week, Pro Wrestling America. What are we going to do with Sting leaving with the world title? We'll have to see. Then the following week is digging deeper as we go further into the Psalms, especially Psalms 7 and 8. As we get closer and closer to Easter, and then again, closer and closer to May, where these monthly confessional corners and digging deeper become weekly as we go three broadcasts a week so that we can further help develop your ability to wrestle with the, uh, the theologies around you. And so I, again, as I always do, listen to these podcast episodes, listen to the moments of meditation, go to Facebook, listen to and watch the majoring in the minors videos. I'm working in the next couple of weeks to try to get all of those managed together. But if you go to wrestlingwiththeology.org, Click the Bible study, majoring in the minors tab. You will see the list of all of them that have been done so far and be able to watch whichever ones you want. If you want to go back to Jonah and Joel, or we're going through Hosea right now, all great things that you will be able to be enriched from. Not because I've done such a great job on them, not because you're listening so well, but because through these, the grace and peace and mercy of God come to you, reminding you of the forgiveness of your sins through Christ and granting you that strength to wrestle with theology. Amen.